Major funding for NJ Spotlight News is provided in part by NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years, and by the PSCG Foundation. Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, Congressman Andy Kim trumps Tammy Murphy in a convention vote in her own county, cementing an early lead despite Murphy's holding most of the party line. Don't count her out just yet. On the other hand, I think what the Andy Kim campaign is saying is we can win grassroots even in the machine counties. Plus, an illegal nightclub crackdown in Patterson. There's a new task force to target gun violence and improve public safety. Nearly one in five shootings stem from or have some nexus to illegal nightlife activities. Also in Trenton, lawmakers renew their fight to reform the state's affordable housing program once and for all. And businesses in the state are under scrutiny for denying service to those with service animals. You play out scenarios in your head and it, and it can be very emotionally taxing for sure. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. From NJPBS Studios, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venozzi. Good evening and thanks for joining us this Monday night. I'm Brianna Venozzi. Congressman Andy Kim delivered a decisive blow to Tammy Murphy's campaign for U.S. Senate this weekend, winning the backing of the Monmouth County Democratic Party. Kim scored nearly 57 percent of the vote during the state's first Democratic convention for the primary election. It's considered an important task in the fight to replace embattled senior U.S. Senator Bob Menendez, especially because it was won in the First Lady's home county and comes as her campaign secured support from county party leaders up and down the state. Saturday's convention in Long Branch saw hundreds of local party leaders, along with rank-and-file committee members, turn out to choose their preferred candidate for the June 6th primary. Murphy had better luck, though, during the day's convention in Passaic County, which awarded her the line. And while these are mostly symbolic events, insiders say it shows the momentum Kim's campaign is garnering at the grassroots level, which could prove critical in going up against the party machine. Senior political correspondent David Cruz reports. If you look at Saturday's Monmouth County Democratic Convention, like the Iowa caucuses, you know that winning here doesn't guarantee a victory in the June primary. So the 57% to 39% trouncing by Congressman Andy Kim over First Lady Tammy Murphy is big for the winner, but certainly not determinative. Yes, you know, a long way to go. But what I think this does is that it really shows that you know, this race is up for grabs. You know, I, I think there was a, a lot of thinking that the, the first lady, because of, of her ability to, to lock up some of those county chairs early um, because of, of, of the power of their family, I think it shows that uh, that's not true, that this is not something that there's nothing inevitable here. There's nothing unstoppable here. You know, this is very much going to be and we should want it to be a choice for the people of New Jersey to make. Indeed, for all its first in the state convention status, Monmouth, where Murphy lives and parts of which Kim represents in Congress, produces around six percent of the state's Democratic voters in heavily Democratic counties like Hudson, Essex and Bergen, 
where the party bosses make the picks, Tammy Murphy's already won the line and all the benefits thereof. Analyst Micah Rasmussen says that's true, but adds that there was another takeaway from the convention. Don't count her out just yet. On the other hand, I think what the Andy Kim campaign is saying is we can win grassroots even in the machine counties. Don't count your chickens before they hatch. We can win votes and committee people and Democratic votes in Essex County, in Hudson County, in Camden County. We can compete. We can get grassroots votes there. So, you know, uh, a machine vote isn't necessarily an indication that Tammy Murphy is going to get every vote in those counties. We couldn't get anyone from the Murphy campaign to talk with us today, but former Monmouth County Democratic Chairman, State Senator Vin Gopal, who's not endorsing anyone in this race, says there's plenty of time for Murphy, who, by the way, won the Passaic County line this weekend, to recalibrate. I think that there was frustration that the first endorsements of the state were were Leroy Jones and George Norcross, and, and it was a very top-down effect. And I think that, that rattles folks uh, at the grassroots level. Whether fair or unfair, I, I can't speak to that. I, I think a little unfair, because I know Tammy Murphy, but I know a lot of other people um, uh, haven't gotten that because the first thing they got to read was that, hey, Bob Menendez is uh, got gold bars and not your senators, and we are going to speak for you on who your new nominee is going to be. And that is what rattles a lot of the rank and file. Activist Patricia Campos is also in this race. She got around 4% of the vote this weekend and says this is a year where party bosses are facing their own challenge. This was a test of whether her machine, her operation, actually could live up to a challenge from the grassroots opposition to the machine. Now, that energy right now is with Andy Kim because he's being added for three months. But so, so that is a big blow to their belief that they didn't have to work that hard to earn voters' trust. In the end, only three presidents since 1972 won their Iowa caucuses, and just three Iowa losers went on to win the presidency, all Republicans. Take from that what you will, but a win is a win right now, and in a closely watched primary, the momentum, it seems, is officially with this weekend's winner. I'm David Cruz, NJ Spotlight News. For years, Patterson locals have complained about violence and other crimes that stem from illegal nightclubs in the city. Last year alone, Patterson police statistics show nearly one out of every five shootings there had a connection to illegal clubs. Now, with a state-appointed officer in charge of the department, law enforcement leaders are planning to tackle the problem, deploying a new task force to take down the illicit operations. Senior correspondent Brenda Flanagan has the details. Everybody agrees this is a cancer on the city. Patterson's top cop says an illegal nightclub scene's operated for years on the down low here, but it's now the target of a new police task force that will try to block a criminal pipeline he says stretches across the river into New York. We're importing problems. We're bringing problems in from New York, from other counties, from other cities around New Jersey, bringing them into Patterson because this has gone on unchecked for far too long. Officer in charge Isa Abbasi says the clubs often flourish in neighborhoods like this one where they impact residents' quality of life and set the stage for serious criminal activity. These are not just places for people to drink, 
right? These are places where you see human trafficking, you see narcotics, you see assaults, you see victimization. Nearly one in five shootings stem from or have some nexus to illegal nightlife activity. Why do they keep popping up? Look, part of the problem is the lack of regulation. They feel like they can operate without any fear of any consequences. Mayor Andre Shea, who opposed the New Jersey Attorney General's takeover of Patterson Police, does support this plan. It'll partner cops with the state divisions of criminal justice and alcoholic beverage control, plus county and local resources, and will prosecute both criminal and civil offenses. The owner of the property, the patrons themselves, the person in control of the premise the night we get there, the DJ, everybody is going to be subject to the strictest enforcement possible, and it's going to be costly. It's going on a year since the state took over Patterson's police department. This club crackdown is part of an overall mission to improve quality of life and transparency with police operations. Justice for Protesters called for reforms in the wake of high-profile police shootings, including the Najee Seabrooks case. Last March, the AG brought in Abbasi, a retired NYPD official, to restore order in Patterson's department. A recent report of internal affairs investigation shows 18 Patterson officers suspended last year compared to one the year prior and 44 sustained complaints compared to just a couple in 2022. Patterson's crime rate also declined last year. We asked residents about it. It doesn't feel like it's any any better or safer? Not really. Not to me. I haven't seen, you know, a lot of crime being committed like in the last maybe six months or something. Meanwhile, Patterson's police department's challenging the attorney general's takeover in court and Saya supports the suit. And we're saying that he doesn't have the authority to take over a police department. But you're seeing the crime rate go down? Well, the you're crime seeing, rate was going down you're before. You're seeing police officers held to account? So the crime rate was going down before it you was. Don't, you don't think the state had anything to do with this? The first three months of last year before the state came in, we saw a precipitous decline in crime. Patterson's nightclub task force will hit the ground running starting this spring, Abasi says. He warned operators to consider this a heads up. In Patterson, I'm Brenda Flanagan, NJ Spotlight News. A major overhaul is in the works for New Jersey's affordable housing system, with lawmakers in the state assembly today approving a significant measure that'll revamp how each town's affordable housing obligations are determined and officially abolish a long-defunct council that was tasked with overseeing the program. Senior correspondent Joanna Gagas is in Trenton now with the latest. Joanna. Yeah, Bree, a package of bills addressing affordable housing in the state was voted on in the assembly today. Now, now, experts say the state needs to develop 200,000 affordable housing units to meet the needs in New Jersey, but how to do that has been a point of contention for years. Now, this package of bills failed in the last legislative session, but seems to be picking up some steam, at least among Democrats, in the start of this session. The most contentious bill, A4S50, would abolish COA, the Council on Affordable Housing, and develop a new oversight body to manage what is the fourth phase of the court-mandated affordable housing unit development here in the state. Several members of the GOP that we spoke to today are strongly opposed. What we have today is a system where uh, builders can leverage the courts, uh, put towns in a bad position, build far more units than the towns need to accept, 
and again, fundamentally change the character of small towns uh, all over the state. I know I have several towns in my district that are seeing flooding they've never seen before because they've got uh, high rises going up and uh, impervious pavement being put in and uh, when when rains come now, there's nowhere for the water to go. Assemblyman Jay Weber called it hypocritical of the Democratic Party that prides itself on being the party that protects the environment. He views it as an unfunded mandate. Assemblyman Bob Auth pushed back on the fines municipalities will face if they don't or can't meet the development timelines. It's patently unfair to them to insist on this very, very strict timeline that they're imposing in this bill. And then if they can't agree or comply with it, they're going to be fined. I think the legislature should seriously be looking at RCAs again. And going back into taking communities that are more affluent, taking a, a, a particular contribution from them and going into communities that are devastated and redevelop redeveloping them. The bill has the support of several groups, including the League of Municipalities, New Jersey Citizen Action, the New Jersey Working Families Party, and the New Jersey Fair Share Housing Center, whose executive director, Adam Gordon, pushed back on the GOP perspective. I think it's unfortunate that for many people, when you try to build housing for uh, lower income families, especially black and brown families, it's framed as an unfunded mandate. And when people try to build warehouses or office parks, you don't hear the same concerns. Uh, we've been creating lots of affordable housing in New Jersey in a very successful way that strengthens our state's economy and that really helps make New Jersey work for everybody. The bill heard hours of testimony on the assembly floor today. What started as a ruling for the exclusionary zone and In the end, A4 did pass through the assembly along party lines. The Senate version now needs to make its way through the Appropriations Committee and then through a full Senate vote. In Trenton, I'm Joanna Gagas. Back to you in the studio, Bree. All right, thank you, Joanna. In our Spotlight on Business report, we may all be from one state, but there's no denying the differences and rivalry between North and South Jersey. The Chamber of Commerce of Southern New Jersey is shedding light on that, issuing a report today to help policymakers understand what's unique about the seven southernmost counties, a region the group says is misunderstood by lawmakers in central and northern New Jersey, who often have a heavy hand in writing statewide mandates that aren't always beneficial to the area. The Chamber's president and CEO, Christina Renna, says there's a host of possibilities that could lead to more economic growth in South Jersey if the state takes this opportunity to initiate them. She joins me now. Christina Rana, great to talk to you. This is a really clear picture of what South Jersey as a region is up against. Why, though, did you see the need to break it out as a separate area from the rest of the state? Why are the needs so different? Well, I think that's the exact reason why, because South Jersey's needs are quite different than the rest of the state. There seems 
in many ways to be a little bit of a misunderstanding as to what makes South Jersey, South Jersey. And the truth of the matter is the region as a whole is extremely diverse. This report hopes to enlighten lawmakers, possibly not from this area, about all the different dynamics that go into the construct of the region. And despite those different dynam dynamics, there are four kind of key issues that you all lay out uh, among the seven counties. What are they? So really four issues that really touch every corner of South Jersey in some way, shape or form. That would be mass transit, lack of transportation mm -hmm. options and lack of tra transportation infrastructure broadband access or ability to access devices um, needed to access the internet, the need for targeted incentives that really take into consideration the unique dynamics of South Jersey and affordable housing, housing options in general. A lot of these issues may not necessarily be very specific to South Jersey. The state is seeing some of those as well. But as we went county by county, there are the four themes that seem to be impediments to really growing the region economically. Why haven't there, Christina, been the type of investments that we've seen elsewhere in the state? I think population has a lot to do with it. Obviously, our population is vastly different than that in central and northern New Jersey. And so riderships will naturally be, be lower. Um, but at the end of the day, in order to grow um, economically, uh, bring businesses to the region and therefore grow our pool of jobs in this region, we need to have opportunities that you can get to without owning a car. What are the other policy suggestions that you all are making? Um, and I'm thinking about the areas of, you know, Atlantic City and Cape May, where tourism is big, but we don't always see that happen year round in the way that uh, employers would like. You know, those two counties specifically, Brianna, are really interesting examples that you point to. Both have very dominant industries that I think when outside lawmakers from outside this region or even people in South Jersey think of those two counties, Atlantic and Cape May County, they think naturally casino gaming in Atlantic County and in Cape May County, the shore communities, beaches and the tourism community. That ends up being a real impediment to greater economic growth in those two specific counties because a lot of state dollars goes to those industries as they should. And we aren't arguing that it shouldn't. But what we are trying to shine a light on are those other areas that are poised for development. I also just found it very quickly interesting that when it comes to warehouses and development of that nature, it was listed as both um, helping the economy in South Jersey, but it's also a challenge. Why is that? It's a little bit of a mixed bag, and that's why you're seeing lawmakers really struggle with creating policies around what smart warehousing, distribution, and logistics centers look like. South Jersey is definitely not... Um, you know, separate from that conversation. There are pockets of the region that really could use the job growth and the job opportunities that those warehousing and distribution centers bring. It's a complicated issue. Statewide lawmakers continue to struggle with how to create holistic policy that kind of helps where the industry can grow and also um, hears the concerns of others. And again, South Jersey is not unique to that, but 
we definitely have some counties that um, it, that situation, that issue is more impactful than others. Christina Renna is the president and CEO of the Chamber of Commerce of Southern New Jersey. Christina, thank you so much. Thank you. On Wall Street, stocks edged higher today after the S&P 500 index reached a historic close last week. The question is, can the market sustain tomorrow's big inflation update? Here's how stocks closed. We leave you tonight with an alarming trend that's making life more difficult and discriminatory for many of New Jersey's blind residents. A significant uptick in reports of businesses denying service to those with seeing eye dogs. Everything from hotels and restaurants to ride shares. Advocacy groups say as the number of people using emotional support animals spiked, venues started cracking down. Ted Goldberg reports. It really is independence. It's a whole new freedom. Good boy. People like Kyle Street and Melissa Allman depend on their guide dogs to help experience the world. If there was not a safe point for me to cross and, and or it wasn't safe for me to cross yet, and I thought it was, if I would tell Luna forward, she knows to intelligently disobey me. And then I hear the car go past and I'm like, wow, you're amazing. You've saved my life once again. Allman works at the Seeing Eye a nonprofit that has trained guide dogs for almost 100 years. She says Luna is much more helpful to her than a cane. I needed to be able to move swiftly around people, around obstacles on the sidewalk, like maybe a power washer or possibly a newspaper stand. When you're using a white cane, you're having to find obstacles along the way and then figure out how to go around them. Uh, whereas a dog just kind of takes all that guesswork out um, and you're able to focus on the things that everyone else gets to focus on, the birds that are chirping. But even though these service animals have been helping those with disabilities for years, Street and Allman say they're starting to see a troubling trend for those with guide dogs, businesses discriminating against them. And then I get a second driver and they cancel and get a third driver and they cancel. Um, and I've had that happen multiple times. Things like catching an Uber can be tricky. And Street says he and Bailey have been denied a ride more than 40 times over the last year, even though that violates the Americans with Disabilities Act. The driver said, I'm only going to take the dog for a fee. And I said, that's a, for an extra fee. And I said, that's against the law. And he said he didn't care. Allman says hotels are also breaking the law if they force her to stay on a pet-friendly floor, since other people's pets may not be trained and could interfere with guide dog duties. And if something happens to her because of a, another dog, then that could end our partnership forever. And I can't take that risk, so please don't put me on a pet floor. Unless, of course, it's the only room left, and that's, that's a whole different story. As for restaurants, they can be hit or miss. It adds up to a lot of aggravation for people trying to get around with their guide dogs. They tried to tell me that I could only sit outside. Um, it was 35 degrees outside. It definitely is exhausting. And I think like when it really gets to me, 
is, I know, it's so upsetting. When uh, my son sees it, um, you know, uh, my wife and I both being blind, uh, we try really hard to, to make sure that he understands that blindness is nothing but a minor inconvenience and that we can do everything that anyone else can do. You play out scenarios in your head and it, and it can be very emotionally taxing for sure. Considering it's already illegal to deny someone service because of a guide dog, Allman says the solution is education, and that rideshare companies in particular need to do a better job of teaching their employees. No one can know all of the laws, but it's about being educated and being willing to take responsibility for the people that you've hired to educate them so that they're not set up to fail, but most importantly, so that people are not discriminated against. Last month, the Seeing Eye created a new department focusing on raising awareness and support for guide dog handlers, hoping to help people and their guide dogs fight discrimination. In Morristown, I'm Ted Goldberg, NJ Spotlight News. That does it for us tonight, but don't forget to download the NJ Spotlight News podcast so you can listen anytime. I'm Brianna Venozzi for the entire NJ Spotlight News team. Thanks for being with us. Have a great evening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child. And RWJ Barnabas Health, let's be healthy together. NJM Insurance Group has been part of New Jersey for over a century. We support our communities through NJM's corporate giving program, supporting arts and culture related and nonprofit organizations that serve to improve the lives of children, rebuild communities, and help to create a new generation of safe drivers. We're proud to be part of New Jersey. NJM, we've got New Jersey covered. I'm very grateful that I'm still here. That's me and my daughter when we went to celebrate our first anniversary. With a new kidney, I have strength. They gave me a new lease on life. I'm still going everywhere and exploring new places. Nobody thought I was going to be here. Nobody. And I look forward to getting older with my wife. That's possible now. We're transforming lives through innovative kidney treatments, living donor programs, and world-renowned care at two of New Jersey's premier hospitals. They gave me my normal life back. It's a blessing. RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together.